0: Welcome to the Mystic and the Skeptic, I'm your host, David. Today we're discussing um, the impact of Abraham Joshua Heschel on contemporary Jewish thought and the, the impact that he did on the greater world. You know, He was involved with the civil rights movement. And in our previous show, we had a conversation with his daughter, Susanna Heschel, and we were talking about some of the social and political issues that are going on today In this interview, we're going to be talking more about the philosophical underpinnings of Abraham Joshua Heschel's thought and and works, and then both me and our guest David Wharton were privileged to study under Dr. Byron Sherwin, who was a protege of Heschel, and he also wrote extensively about important topics, and it's great to have an opportunity to discuss this, especially after the passing of, of our professor, Dr. Sherwin. And I think that he, he's well-known in, in in some Jewish circles, but I think that his ideas, who were deeply influenced by Abraham Joshua Heschel, people should be aware of the background behind some of the things that Son Heschel was saying in our, on our show. So, David Wharton, uh, tell us a little bit about yourself and what has the impact of Rabbi Heschel has had on your life uh, from what we learned together, and from you reading his books.
1: Well, one of the things I've been really interested in is to understand Jewish thinking or what I would call as a Hebraic perspective. I think that uh, thinking Hebraically or thinking Jewishly is actually in contrast to uh, the thought of our culture and the thought that uh, we find taught in most schools. Uh, rather than trying to label that thought as Western thought, Greek thought, Roman thought, or something like that, uh, I just like to call it the other culture and contrast the Hebraic perspective to the other culture. Dr. Sherwin, I listened to one of his lectures in the synagogue, and he was one of the first people who communicated what I would call some some of the pieces of Hebraic perspective to the point to where it made chills go down my back. And I knew that I had to study more with him and understand what he had to say more. He was a great impact uh, in my life, giving me a much better, broader, and deeper understanding of what a a Hebraic perspective is.
0: You can tell us a little bit about your background. Fortunate enough to study under David Flusser, studying in Jerusalem. Just for people to be familiar with your work. Tell us about what has been your educational background and your academic work up to this point.
1: In a nutshell, without taking too much time, I grew up in a Presbyterian church, a somewhat evangelical Presbyterian church. I graduated from an evangelical-type Bible college and served in a Christian uh, campus ministry for two years. Sprinkled in there, I ended up in Israel in 73 and experienced the Yom Kippur War over in Israel, and that's what completely was like a bombshell that went off in me, that entire experience, and set me on a pathway to understand Jesus as a Jew, and that became the most important aspect to understand in terms of the whole realm of Christianity for me. Continuing that journey, I there's a lot of pieces to it, but the whole Hebrew culture, Hebrew thought, Hebrew language became something that I wanted to learn as well as I could with my ability. And that drove me uh, into the synagogue to understand all of the realities of a very perspective better, and uh, that became my home. So I'm in the synagogue now. I still do study Jesus from the standpoint that he was a Jew and teach that. And that's, uh, in a nutshell, I guess, uh, part of my journey.
0: And going back to the impact of Abraham Joshua Heschel on, on your life and my life, we took the the class called The Life and Thought of Abraham Joshua Heschel by Dr. Byron Sherwin. You know, he talked about personal insights and memories from working with him, and we reviewed a lot of the history of his life, his works, his, his theological teachings, in how he would confront different uh, Jewish religious groups about either their stagnant religious behavior or their dismissal of religious tradition for uh, political purposes from other groups. And there's been multiple biographers who are trying to take him to a more, you know, modern truth would be liberal or unorthodox perspective about society. But um, from what we gather in our class, he was very traditional, Person. He was very modern in some senses, too, because he left parts of the Jewish community and got involved more in the greater world. What aspects of his life are powerful to you as as we were learning about his life?
1: What comes to my mind and is, is strong in my mind are two aspects at this point. One aspect is with uh, Dr. Sherwin. I have had the opportunity of studying with a lot of scholars, some that are, are well-known. Like you mentioned, Dr. Fusser, and studied with Dr. Boxer, S. F. F. Bruce. Uh, in the Christian realm, and Bruce Metzger at Princeton Seminary. Uh, I could go on with a list of some different people that I've had the opportunity to study with and talk to. I only mentioned the grocery list, not trying to show off, but what I'm going to say here is uh, very significant. Dr. Sherwin was the most personable scholar I have ever known. The one thread that runs throughout uh, Joshua Heschel's teaching, and I'm not sure how many people pick up on this, uh, but I sensed this and continually felt it uh, in Doctor Sherwin, and that is the whole practice of having an awe of God, and that realizing that having an awe of God on a daily basis and in your daily life, not to just be abstract and philosophical, but then you then can have an awe of every individual, realizing that they're created in the image of God, and to look at life from the standpoint of an awe of God, then you will seek beauty and wonder, and uh, amazement of all of life and its complexity. Dr. Er, Joshua Heschel, he he practiced that in a very real sense, and I think that that's what took him into some of the political uh, movements and political things that he did, was working out of that reality in his daily life. And the personableness of uh, Dr. Sherwin, I think that uh, an awe of God was something that was true within him, and that also... Became evident in his relationship to his students that he uh, definitely showed a care and concern for.
0: You know, in a time that um, there's a lot of cynicism and there's a lot of authoritarianism in the sense of like maybe the, the best term is nihilism, where people are just living for a living and and there's really nothing more when life is done. And of course, there's different uh, Eastern uh, religions who that have engaged the mind of of modern Americans, but there's still a lot of emptiness and a lot of lack of interest in in that type of spirituality. There is a spirituality that is very common in modern culture, but it's most like self-oriented. Do you feel that that concept and if you can describe the concept for us of the the pathos of of God that a lot of people say was the the main impetus of Heschel's writings that that's something that they can help people connect with. What some people will call the holy, other people call a greater divine being. What does it mean to have pathos for God?
1: Well, the pathos of God that Heschel talked about, and so that Dr. Sherwin was a rather large the subject, this is rather crass the way I'm going to put this. Uh, I think that the other culture is always concentrated on the omnis of God. And in Dr. Sherwin's work and in Heschel's work, I think that we what we confront and what we find is that in the Mikra, some people might want to say Tanakh or Hebrew Bible or what we really have is a human God. And the human God is the one that's been revealed to us that we can know and have a relationship and understand. And the Omni God is really the Ain self is sort of out there in the nebulous place. Most of the theological thought spins around trying to figure out the Omni. And I think it's completely displaced and it's doing a disservice to everybody and it's gone in the wrong direction because of the other culture. And I think the focus should be on the human uh, God and let me just give one little fact uh, maybe it's not a little fact it's a huge fact But if you look at the Torah and you figure that the Torah the first five books of the Bible closed and then you look at the rest of the Micra and you ask well if you look at the rest of the Micra, what verse or section whatever that's in the Torah is really significant more than anything else and you'll find Exodus 34 verse 6 and 7 is the section that is echoed, quoted, and used more than any other verse, verses uh, in the rest of the Mikra Is coming out of the Torah. And if you examine that, it's the 13 Midot, And most of the Midot that are in there are characteristics of who God is, and they're also characteristics of who people can be too, who humans can be. And so if you look at Exodus uh, 34, verse 6 and 7, it's the reviewing of the human God to use this rather overly crass term, and that that's a God that we can know, emulate, and have a relationship with. And I think that the whole omni, uh, to be rather overstatement, I think that should be all thrown out the door and forgotten about, and we should embrace the human God. And so embracing the human God, that's where the pathos of God is. God has emotions. God has pathos and desires and and that that's a a real aspect of the god of the Mikra, and that has followed down through history, Uh, can be seen uh, in the warp and the wolf of the Talmud, and on into other works in the medieval period. Uh, If you read somebody like, this isn't going to be a nice statement, somebody like Maimonides, Maimonides had the omni-god, a cold god that was off in the distance, just the god that was thought about and was thinking about humans, and wouldn't touch humans in any type of a way. That's the omni-god. That's not the human god. That's the god in the Mikra. And, you know, Maimonides went down that road because he synthesized with other cultures. And there can be good reason for doing that at times. But I think uh, ultimately he did more damage than he did good. The usual god that's run into in institutions, uh, both Christian and a lot of Jewish institutions, is the omni-god. A lot of people are turned off to that, and for right reason.
0: And to define our terms, we're we're talking about the difference between the God of the philosophers and the God of the mystics. You know, philosophy is uh, established uh, through the Greek philosophers, and throughout history, both Christian and Jewish uh, philosophers have taken some of their ideas and expanded upon them, and they have brought in the Middle Eastern or uh, Hebraic Uh, understanding of God and fuse them together. But what we see in the Bible is this very personable God. And some people would have issues with attributing uh, human characteristics to God because then you have God being made in our image as compared to us being made in His image. But from a rabbinic or Jewish perspective, that's the whole point that is someone that we can relate to and someone that has the same... uh, attributes that we have when it comes down to, um, you know, dealing with, with his experiences. So when God gets angry or, um, or, you know, struggles with some of the decisions he made in the Bible to people who come from a Greek, uh, philosophical perspective, that's nonsense because how can God be, uh, affected by human interactions or human actions and then, but what we would say is that, of course, because if it's a distant God, it's a, a God that is uh, out in the in the space, uh, then is no God at all because you can't uh, connect with him. And the difference between the Greek concept of God and the Hebraic one is that it's a God that is actively involved in the lives of his children and who's, who's intervening on their behalf. So the only reason that he would intervene is because he cares. But if he doesn't care and he's just happy being the the clockmaker, just setting the world in motion and having nothing to do with it, then we're abandoned as human beings and we have no way to reach this greater being. So, you know, Christians would handle that a little bit different. But when it all comes down to it, these are the concepts that, uh, that Mr. Wharton is, is describing. that. Um, because of the the philosophical understanding or the emphasis on on one perspective of God over the other, there has been a kind of slowly the the spirituality that that is conveyed in in uh, in both the biblical and Talmudic writings ha, has been uh, destroyed because people don't have time for that type of very complex understanding of God they want something that is clean and pristine and they can just say you know kind of like the Greek philosophers we know there is a, a deity because you know these you know the universe is there and it had to come from somewhere but then because of that well, good
1: let me say one more thing uh, and everything you're saying is great and I agree with it there's one other uh, aspect that's really big within a Hebraic perspective, and sometimes the uh, uh, more Eastern uh, religions understand this better than any of the Western ones. Uh, but that is sort of an organic whole, and looking at everything from the standpoint that it's uh, one organic piece and it's it's whole and it's not to be separated. The other cultures that we're used to, especially in Western thought, wants to have an upper story, lower story. The lower story is the physical, the body, and then the upper story is the ethereal, heavenly ideas. And what's upper story is considered pure, clean, holy, and that's where truth is. The lower story is dirty, evil, problems, desires, uh, sex, and this is no good, blah, blah, blah. Um, this lower story and upper story and the separation between those two is, is deeply engulfed, uh, engulfs all of, of the other culture in its thought. And it's uh, extremely difficult to embrace almost any of the other culture without getting some type of a nuancing from this perspective. And the whole thing with Hebraic thought is that it doesn't have that uh, at all in it. Everything is seen as a, a unit and as a whole. And that is perhaps easy to make a summary statement, but the implication of that is titanic. It's huge. And when you want to talk about spirituality from a Hebraic perspective. Spirituality can start from the physical realm and like the whole Kabbalistic thing. And it's even been tripped over within some aspects of Judaism because within Kabbalistic things, sexuality is seen as an epicenter for where the divine can take place. And if you look at Platonic thought and other cultures, that, you know, what? That can't, that's not, wait a minute, that doesn't work at all. The whole thing is spirituality. You have washing of your hands. You have a blessing for going to the bathroom. It's a holistic approach. Every act, every physical act that you do in the physical realm is not to be separated from spirituality. And spirituality within the physical realm should all be one unit and viewed as an organic whole. And to do that, and to start to look at all of life from that lens and from that matrix, uh, completely changes a whole bunch of typical thought.
0: And for those who are not familiar with the, the Kabbalah, you, you mentioned the term Ein Sof, and that's this idea of God is, um, is like an ultimate source. Kabbalah is what is known today as revelations or inner works of god and it has been developed throughout the years and you know there was ancient kabbalah and then there's modern kabbalah and and again these are complex subjects but when it all comes down to it um this idea of sexuality being a, a place uh of of holiness it comes from from certain kabbalistic ideas of um you know, Adam and Eve god and, and humans uh having a, a covenant or or almost like a marriage uh, there's stuff about the angels uh, at the temple being united. There's a lot of very uh, specific things related to that but but i I agree that um it uh it sanctifies um, normal life and it creates a, a greater understanding of our physical nature as compared to separating it or saying that the only way that someone can participate in in divinity is to go move into a mountain and, and be by themselves and not partake of sexuality so it's a different approach as compared to some of the the Christian mystics that saw it more as 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 uh, you know if you talk about separation and in, in Judaism there's holiness means separation but it's more of um, a special relationship or setting something apart for a special purpose. In Christianity, holiness is retrieving away from uh, the polluted world and, and trying to create uh, a heavenly outpost in a monastery or in in your home or in your church. So so there are different approaches. So is that one of the things that, that, that you were uh, dealing with as, as you came out of a Christian background and then Delving into Judaism,
1: uh, that whole process is uh, uh, ever-changing, ever-processing uh, journey that uh, never stops. It uh, seems like every couple of weeks I'll be studying something uh, in Judaism, and it's like the light goes on, and then I feel like uh, my entire perspective goes through a paradigm change. And I wonder uh, how did I ever think. Or how could have I perceive reality correctly, uh, before, after I had this I don't know, illumination or whatever you want to call it, and uh, changed the perspective. Um, so that that's for me it's like uh, ongoing um you talk about holiness. I um I don't remember if this was from Joshua Heschel or from Milgram in his commentary in the book of Leviticus and studying the Um, I really think that holiness is dealing with purpose. Uh, Because the whole thing of holiness, the key uh, basic idea that everyone gives out is to be separation. You're separating from something. But the whole purpose is that you separate from something in order to accomplish something. And the easiest way to think of this is if a vessel uh, was holy in the temple, then it could be put to its proper use in the temple. And if it wasn't holy, then it would be set aside and wouldn't be used. The typical idea that holiness is something that's separated, yeah, but what's it separated for? It's separated for a purpose, and then it's put to purpose. If you're sanctifying yourself and becoming holy, oh, that's wonderful. Well, when God is putting you to your purpose, when you are doing your intended purpose that God has created for you for, and God is a whole with you, and the organic reality is taking place of God's presence, and the divine influence is taking place, then that's when the purpose is taking place. Being separated from something that stops that from happening is not really what the deal is. The deal is, is that there's a purpose that's taking place. And we can make one other quick statement here. The, the main place that you start to understand holiness is the book of Leviticus, is Vayukra. One of the main things on holiness from God is that you shall be holy because I am holy. God is holy, and then the, the sense and the reality and the definition of who God's holiness is is the same holiness that we have. What has been revealed to us is a human God, and this shows his humanness completely. You shall be holy as I am holy. The holiness that God has revealed to us is the holiness that we have. It's not that he is the tremendium and the other and the omni. That is not the God of the micra. That is some other cultural invention that has taken place. The holiness of God is our holiness. When we become holy, it's the same way that God is holy. And when God's holiness is grasped by us, then we are holy and we experience the holiness of God. It's the same organic reality that takes place with us and with God. Heschel understood the point that I just made. He articulated it differently. That's something in his whole awe of God that takes place over and over again. in God in search of man The whole awe of God is so uh, wonderful and beautiful in that book that it's overwhelming. Let me make one other statement for uh, your Christian audience is that there's a fantastic book called Our Father Abraham by Dr. Wilson. And Dr. Wilson was deeply influenced by Heschel in his work. He's taught a class on Heschel where he teaches, I think, every year or something like that. And Our Father Abraham, which is a great uh, introduction for Christians, evangelical Christians to use for understanding a Hebraic perspective, the energy and the spark and the underlying presupposition of that book has come out of Dr. As, uh, Joshua Heschel's works.
0: What else did you see in Dr. Sherwin's works and teachings that was impactful? I know you, you do a class about him in Austin at one of the synagogues that he, he used to uh, come visit and, and support there. What other things do you think that all of our public should be aware of? There's been so much um, misinformation about Judaism and the internet and there's been all kinds of things coming out trying to discredit the Jewish people and we talked about that with Sana Heschel. What should be the few things that people should be aware of from a Jewish perspective that are actually helpful for greater humanity. And what light and, and positivity can Judaism bring to the world?
1: Uh, absolutely. I, I would say absolutely from what you said. I think that he really saw the dignity of every individual, and that was a reality in his life and, and expression.
0: Well, let's talk just a little bit about politics, because you know people have tried to reclaim Martin Luther King for themselves, and the same with Abraham Joshua Heschel. You know, the the Vietnam era was a very divisive time for Americans, and there was all kinds of things going on. That I was born in the 80s, and I was born in different countries, so I wasn't part and parcel of that. Did you hear at any time when Heschel was still alive that anybody saw him as a radical for taking such a strong stance against the Vietnam War, such a strong stance against prejudicial laws in the different states against African Americans, or was he seen as a defender of human rights in the eyes of the Jewish world. Like, Did anybody think that he kind of lost his moral high ground by getting too politically involved? Or from what you know, people always respected his standpoint.
1: That's a real big question. I think uh, a lot of people have written a lot of uh, material on
0: trying to answer
1: that one. That was huge. The last book that Dr. Sherwin did, Faith-Finding Meaning of the Jewish Theology. One of the things that's in there that has really stuck with me and I think is very significant, is understanding the covenantal relationship and the covenantal relationship between God and the Jewish people as a partnership and operating within that partnership, and to realize that there's a paradigm within which uh, Judaism actually takes place and within which we can enter into and take place within that partnership. Think of it in terms of a partnership. I mean, it's a simple little phrase to use, but uh, sometimes the simple things are the profound things. I think that that's something that I know I frequently reflect upon and uh, work within. So being a blessing or something like that is a part of the partnership that uh, we can have. Uh, my one teacher that I had, uh, I always talked about braha. He said when a, a river overflows and floods, that it's behind. If you can make the Hebrew word into a, a participle in English. And it's going over its banks, it's flooding, it's going over its banks, and that's what a bracha is. So I think what the deal is, is that we need to be in that category, and uh, seeking to move people into that category, and realize that there's always going to be a uh,
0: paradigm of
1: uh, the other people out there.
0: What do you think about the book of the prophets from Heshu? greatest concept is the in-depth theology, and that's studying the prophets and seeing how... They had a very active relationship with God. Do you think that it's... Um, can we read the prophets with, with that type of intense uh, understanding? Or
1: To really back away a little bit and just ask who's the God that they're talking about. And that was Heschel's uh, insight that the uh, God that they're talking about is a God of pathos. Not a distant, uninvolved God, but a God that's close, near, involved and is concerned about the everyday human life and what's taking place. I would give an a, uh, encouragement uh, plotting that everyone should get and read through Dr. Sherwin's book, Find uh, Finding Meaning, um, his Jewish theology book. There's so much content in that book that uh, one can read through that Uh, Over and over again, find great meaning and encouragement and significance. We've got so many ideas and concepts in there to give thought to that can be helpful. um, That I think it's a beautiful uh, book. I I think almost all of his work is summarized in that book. So I would give that uh, pragmatic encouragement to people for them. Uh, it will change how you think and how you view Judaism completely differently. It's not uh Halakhic material, it's theological, uh philosophical thinking materials. It's in their concepts and ideas.
0: Well, we wanna thank you for your time. We appreciate you sharing your thoughts and we invite you to be back on the show um sometime soon so we can go a little more in depth into Um, your institute and how you share some of these concepts with your students. We believe that it's important for people to learn about different faiths, to learn about different perspectives. And in the show, we've had people from multiple backgrounds. So thank you again, David Wharton, for being on the show, and we'll be talking to you soon.